Because in Oklahoma, legal segregation was invented in Oklahoma. In the South, they just practiced it. They just did it. <laughs> we had to have a cloak in Oklahoma because to come in, to becoming a union, they said that Oklahoma couldn't come in as a segregated state. So what they did, before statehood, Oklahoma was thoroughly integrated. After the first bill passed, after statehood was Senate Bill 1, that segregated our schools, our cars, everything public. That's Oklahoma. The grandfather clause was invented in Oklahoma. In Oklahoma, you have to know this history. Blacks could not go to institution of higher education. Many of us got a better education because some of our teachers were more qualified than the whites because you could only go to Langston. If you sought a master's degree, Oklahoma would pay you to go anywhere but Oklahoma. <laughs> As a consequence, many of our educators came to us with master's degree from great universities. So when I, my generation graduated from high school, we had an equivalent of a liberal arts degree in high school. Thurgood Marshall, Amos Hall, and the rest of them, NAACP came to Oklahoma and said, that is wrong. That is wrong. Blacks should have an education in Oklahoma. Scipio versus the state of Oklahoma. Not only desegregated higher education for Oklahoma throughout the South, and you owe that to Thurgood Marshall and Oklahoma. I just want to add a footnote before I make our presentation. When they brought the Indians here in the five civilized tribes, some of us came with them. We were part of it. I can trace my family back to 1854 in Grayson, Oklahoma, and I is an Indian. <laughs>that was former Oklahoma State Representative Don Ross speaking during an NAACP convention years ago when he was still in office. We'll learn more about him a little later. In partnership with the Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission, I'm Nia Clark, and this is Black Wall Street, 1921. Can you believe we're getting down to the last couple of episodes? If you've been with us from the beginning, I sincerely thank you for joining me in taking this trip back into history. If you've joined us sporadically for one or more episodes, I thank you as well. None of this would be possible without your support. I know this is a really heavy subject matter that's probably difficult for a lot of you to listen to or handle. This podcast episode is no different. As we've established previously, we know that many survivors of the Tulsa Race Massacre left Tulsa following the attack, some never to return. We also know that thousands of African Americans who survived the massacre remained in Tulsa, and eventually, many of them rebuilt Black Wall Street. 
What we haven't talked much about are African-American residents of Tulsa's predominantly Black Greenwood District who simply disappeared during and after the massacre. These were people who not only were never heard from again, but their bodies were never found as well. The question is, what happened to those people? And presuming many of them died, as a good number of Black Tulsans did, then what happened to their bodies? For nearly a century, those last two questions have been the subject of much speculation. For the last several decades, they've been at the center of collaborative efforts by a number of experts to find what are believed to be mass graves, where many bodies are said to be buried. For years, survivor accounts and family lore told of large numbers of bodies being buried in mass graves following the Tulsa Race Massacre. On the other hand, some witnesses reported seeing black corpses hauled to the banks of and dumped in the Arkansas River. Still, the idea of mass graves is addressed in that groundbreaking report by the Oklahoma Commission to study the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921, which pointed to examples in which many bodies were hurriedly rushed to burial and records of these burials are nowhere to be found. Quote, O.T. Johnson, commandant of the Tulsa Citadel of the Salvation Army, stated that on Wednesday and Thursday, the Salvation Army fed 37 Negroes employed as grave diggers and 20 on Friday and Saturday. During the first two days, these men dug 120 graves, in each of which a dead Negro was buried. No coffins were used. The bodies were dumped into the holes and covered with dirt. Other written evidence, including funeral home records that had lain unseen for more than 75 years, would later confirm that African-American riot victims were buried in unmarked graves at Oaklawn Cemetery. But oral sources would also point to additional unmarked burial sites for riot victims in Tulsa County, including New Block Park, along the Sand Springs Road, and the historic Booker T. Washington Cemetery, located some 12 miles southeast of the city. End quote. Back in the late 90s and early 2000s, the Tulsa Race Riot Commission began to inspect these sites to determine if there actually were mass graves in these locations. But the commission ran into some roadblocks with regards to those efforts, which ultimately yielded very few answers. Years later, in October of 2018, Tulsa's current mayor, G.T. Bynum, announced that the city would re-examine previous attempts to find the so-called mass graves. According to the city, Tulsa is leading the effort to re-examine the, quote, potential of graves from the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, as identified in the 2001 State Commission's report. Four sites were identified in the city's examination. Oaklawn Cemetery, New Black Park, an additional area near New Black Park, and Rolling Oaks Memorial Gardens, formerly Booker T. Washington Cemetery, end quote. Why do this? Well, the city says it has three goals, public oversight, historical context, and the physical evidence investigation. But for people who lost loved ones in the massacre for whom they were never able to properly mourn or lay to rest, this serves both as an acknowledgement of that pain and for some, a bit of closure, especially since there was no official recognition of or memorial for the victims. Back in early March of 2020, the City of Tulsa and the Public Oversight Committee agreed to move forward with the test excavation in the Sexton area in Oaklawn Cemetery, where the city says, quote, the initial geophysical investigation identified a large anomaly consistent with a mass grave, end quote. But efforts to unearth potential evidence of mass graves were halted that same month due to the COVID-19 pandemic, when much of the country shut down. 
On July 13, 2020, the city of Tulsa resumed test excavation for the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre at Oaklawn Cemetery. The efforts also involved the help of the University of Oklahoma, Oklahoma Archaeological Survey, or OAS. We're going to hear from a few people who've been involved in the effort to discover possible mass graves of Tulsa Race Massacre victims for years, including Tulsa native Kevin Ross of the Greenwood Tribune. But first, a bit about Ross's father, former state representative Don Ross, who we heard from in the beginning of this podcast. Throughout his life, Ross has also served in the U.S. Air Force. He's been a civil rights activist, journalist, columnist, and entrepreneur. For years, Ross wrote a column about social and urban issues for the all-Black Tulsa newspaper, The Oklahoma Eagle. He later started a magazine called Impact, where, in 1971, on the 50th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre, he wrote about the attack and received surprisingly hostile reactions from readers. In response, he said, quote, I had violated the conspiracy of silence going on for 50 years, end quote. If you listened to the last episode, you would have heard my interview with author and journalist Tim Madigan, who explained how former state representative Don Ross first learned about the Tulsa Race Massacre from his teacher at Booker T. Washington High School, William Danforth Williams, or W.D. Williams. As previously mentioned, Williams was the son of Black Wall Street pioneers and entrepreneurs John and Lola Williams, who also survived the massacre. Black woman told me the other day that the black community was not bitter. Was not bitter? Not now. You know, he's bitter. How about then? Oh, yeah, you were pretty bitter about it then. I don't care what she says. You, you can see when you get everything bad. I can't believe it. I can't believe she said that. No, I can't either. She must not have been here. She was little. She was a small you know, child, you mm-hmm, mean. Mm-hmm. Well, I was 16 and I remember. Mm-hmm. How did this affect your parents? Do you remember them talking about it? Not much because we lived in a tent for the first few months until they built back the dreaming did and in the room of the living quarters upstairs. Uh, I never did hear them talk about it much because I was selfish more interested in myself and we were going to do it at school, football team. One of them going to have a team. And we were getting ready to have the Union <coughs> prom. And they burned down all the holes, you know, where you could dance holes, where you could have it. Mm-hmm. Wondering how we're going to be in school. Then when school did start, you know how a kid is. You don't associate with your parents much other than in the eating time. <laughs> so I don't know how they react. I know that they must have felt that it's a tough fight. 
got to see if we can both make, make a loan to put this building back. They finally built them back, but as I said, this recession set in. They couldn't make the payments. Sold property, trying to get enough money to make it go. <laughs> so much. What kind of predictions do you have for the future of Tulsa? Black Tulsa? Well, I don't think it ever be like it was before. It just has to be melted in with, uh, that's, I believe that's the way it's going to have to be everywhere. Uh, just melted in the community, black and white, just one community. And it's getting better. I believe it'll couple hundred years from now, <laughs> <laughs> it will be better. Years after Tulsa Race Massacre survivor and longtime educator, W.D. Williams would reveal the truth of the massacre to former Oklahoma State Representative Don Ross. Ross became known for his efforts to gain recognition for the Tulsa Race Massacre, which at the time was still commonly referred to as the Tulsa Race Riot. In 1972, Ross was offered a job as assistant managing editor at the Gary Post Tribune in Gary, Indiana, where he says he was inspired to run for office. He moved back to Tulsa in 1977 and ran the Oklahoma Eagle for a short time before leaving to start his own business and later run for office. He served in the Oklahoma State Legislature for 20 years. Ross was the principal organizer of the 75th anniversary commemoration ceremonies of the 1921 massacre. And in 1997, Ross co-sponsored legislation to establish the Tulsa Race Riot Commission, which was charged with studying the events surrounding the massacre. Eventually, the commission recommended reparations and produced an extensive report that I've often referred to throughout this podcast. And speaking of the 75th massacre anniversary commemoration, here is Ross one more time addressing an audience at one of those ceremonies. And I will tell you that my involvement in civil rights activity began in NAACP's youth council under B.H. Roberts. The president was Amos Hall. And through that relationship, when they would come to town, Amos Hall would have us to his home, and I had a chance to meet Clarence Mitchell. His son and I later served in the legislature as the president of the National Black Caucus of State Legislature. And when he heard I won, he told his son, take care of Amos and boy Don, and he did. Aaron Henry, I met at Amos Hall's house out of Clarksdale, Mississippi. Thurgood Marshall, I was there. And I can tell you some things that history won't tell you about some of those gatherings. Because Amos wanted us young people involved with what he called was history. And I feel honored that I was a part of that bit of Oklahoma history with Jake Simmons and all those great names that I knew as a young man. I'm proud of the history I know and understand of the NAACP. Niagara Movement in 1905, W.B. Du Bois pulled together a small group because 
Principally, they were lynching black folks to stop that lynching. And here we are many, many years later, and they're still lynching black folks economically. So you're here to follow that traditional Niagara movement that we got to stop the lynching, whether politically, economically, or by the road. And I appreciate your efforts. Several years later, Don Ross's son, Kevin Ross, would join the Tulsa Race Riot Commission's efforts to study the massacre. Several years later, the initial efforts to discover mass graves began as well. I'm a freelance photographer, videographer, my emphasis has been Greenwood. My company is the Greenwood Tribune. I write for other publications as well, including the um, Black Wall Street Times. Here is located here in Tulsa, as well as the Oklahoma Eagle. Okay, we're focusing on the mass graves today. Talk about the survivors and the legacy they left, the stories they told, and how did hearing their stories impact you and your desire to help figure out how to help perhaps those who did not survive maybe right. rest in peace? One of the things that, that was powerful for me, those interviews were used for the testimony for the state commission to study the Tulsa Race Riot of 1921, which was delivered to Governor Keating's desk and he signed it in 2001, I believe. Uh, we had been working on research since, I believe, 96, when my father authored the bill that led to the creation of the Oklahoma Commission to study the Tulsa Race Riot at 1921. So I assisted historian, author, former educator, Eddie Faye Gates, and we went to the homes and interviewed numerous survivors who at the time were about at the age of 5, 10, 16, and 21 years of age at that time. And that's what interested me as well was the aftermath and the aftereffects of what happened in 21 and see how the city of Tulsa then was so unapologetic for the general purpose as far as reparations for those folks who had suffered much, including my great-grandfather, whose jute joint, the Zulu Lounge, was destroyed and he was not able to reopen. And now there's a freeway that sits upon my inheritance, basically. But what they did was to tell the story so descriptive as, as if you lived on Greenwood with them and experienced not only the destruction of Greenwood, but Greenwood is in its heyday before 1921 and after 21. You mentioned your grandfather. He Was he a survivor? Yes. What was yeah. his name? His name was Isaac Evitt, E-V-I-T-T. -T. He had the Zulu Lounge that was on Cameron Street, which is a street that intersects with, with the Greenwood Avenue area. And what was life like for him after the massacre? From the stories that have been told to my family and others is that he was very angry years later, especially years after the riot, not being able to return back to his businesses. 
having to rebuild everything, lost everything. He was among the, the African-Americans that went down to the courthouse demanding action, demanding that the city do the right thing. And from one of the stories, I was told that he, too, participated in the shootings. As one story said that he, he would visit Tulsa for the last time before he died in the early 60s when I was just a toddler at the time. And they said as he ventured down Greenwood, they said that he turned pale. He was very dark complected and he had light gray eyes. But they said that he had this look on his face, pale as a ghost. And they asked him what's going on. And he said, I see the ghosts of the people that I killed on Greenwood. And, you know, we were fighting for our homes. And when he came in the 60s to look at his formal business, no longer standing, no longer his, he would never return back to Tulsa, back to Oklahoma. He will reside in California at that point and subsequently died sometime after. But he died very, very angry. I don't mean to harp on this, but I think it's just really interesting because we're talking about mass graves, right? And your efforts to unearth those, to figure out exactly, you know, do they exist, where they could exist? And then, you know, how do you provide some sort of closure, right? And so your grandfather, he talked about, you know, seeing the ghosts of people who he killed. What if some of those people, even some of those white people were in those mass graves? We don't know, right? Exactly. You had, just going back to the time of conspiracy of silence, where certain people knew certain things, not everybody knew what was going on. You go back in time. Here it is. You had Black folks who were escorted to the internment camps, supposedly for their protection. They placed it in a convention hall that was known as Brady Theater. Black folks were held there into a baseball park with this. So they were placed in internment camps. Meanwhile, they were getting rid of the bodies. First, it was reported into the hundreds, uh, according to a, a number of newspapers. Those newspapers printed out of state. And then the city came out to official account of 39, between 36 and 39 dead. We knew better than that. Black folks did not know what they did with the bodies because they were in internment camps uh, and, and hiding in different white folks' homes, or many of them fled the city. We did hear early reports. There were a number of mass graves around the city and outside the city as well. We did hear those early reports that bodies were thrown in the Arkansas River. That was like supposed to be a part of urban legend for a long time. And then we heard that there were bodies thrown in furnaces and incinerators around the city. So you're saying that what your family has told you is that while the Black people were taken to the internment camp and being held there for a number of days, while that was happening, you're saying your family says that is when the bodies were either being disposed of or buried. Yeah, exactly. And there's a number of sites, according to the Rich Ride Commission report, there were numerous areas of where bodies were being buried. They do account for that. But the commission sided with three possibly known mass grave areas to search from. One was the New Block Park, which was named after the mayor at the time. There even reports on the convention hall that bodies were buried on there as well. Then Oaklawn Cemetery was the most promising one. 
because there was a, a lot of was talking about it back then that watched the bodies being buried right after the massacre. And then one area that's known as the Booker T. Washington Cemetery is one of the oldest black cemeteries in the city of Tulsa, possibly in the state, which it was highly, highly uh, suspected where the riot there were placed there. And I did work with the Tulsa Race Riot Commission that was formed by the state. I am sitting on the Tulsa Mass Graves Oversight Investigation Committee. The Tulsa Race Riot Commission, you mean the one that came out with the report in 2001? Yes. Okay. Were you a part of that actual commission? Yes, I was. Oh, I was wow. The, I was the videographer recording the testimonies of the survivors. Instead of holding on to these interviews, I've been posting them on, on YouTube so everybody can hear for themselves the stories that, that they were able to tell the whole world before they left this world. But it seems like your grandfather also couldn't take it. And as soon as he came back, he says he saw those ghosts. How do you think other people, other survivors of the massacre, your family members, how do you think they were able to remain in Greenwood knowing what was done to them, knowing that the people who did it were living nearly right next to them almost, and knowing that that all around them could be mass graves of those who never were actually put to rest. Well, you know, I'm reminded uh, by your question of what phrase this is, those who know won't tell and those who tell don't know. And during that time, they knew about it, but they didn't want to tell about it. So where, where is the mission now? Where do we stand now with regards to trying to find these mass graves? Well, you know, when we take that sample of an eight by 10 area and, and see what's underneath. We got the state of Oklahoma by way of the University of Oklahoma's archeology span departments. We got some of the researchers that also assisted in the Race Ride Commission report. It's the city leading the charge, uh, spearheaded by Vanessa Hall Harper, who was a city council for the Greenwood, for the North Tulsa area, and the mayor uh, of the city. And so when the news got out that there was going to be an investigation, it was a lot of folks that were relieved and, and was pushing and uh, pushing for the excavation and the search you know, of, of more sites because everybody felt there was a need to, to move on. And we can't move on until we put these people at a proper rest. We got a, a misunderstanding as far as what happened in Tulsa 1921 was not just a black story. It wasn't a white story, it was a Tulsa story. And so it's not complete until all sides tell the story. Another person who's been involved with efforts to unearth possible Tulsa race massacre mass graves is writer, historian, and University of Michigan Afro-American and African Studies professor, Dr. Scott Ellsworth. If you've been listening to this podcast from the beginning, he should be a familiar voice by now. This, this talk of where all of the people who were killed, where their bodies were put, and exactly how many people were killed. But ever since that massacre, 
witnesses have insisted that that number is much higher. And they've insisted that they, well, eyewitnesses, people who survived the massacre, have reported seeing bodies in vehicles. And there is now this effort that you're involved in, which is to unearth or discover and and sort of make right some of these mass graves that have been said to exist in, in Tulsa. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, sure. And, and I think one thing is important to point out is there was never an official death camp. There was no institution or group to, to issue one. People say, oh, the official death count was 21 or something like that. I mean, what happened, you know, the next day or either on the first or the second, the New York Times reported that 175 people had been killed. You know, after a few weeks, I think, in the Tulsa world and maybe the Tribune, now the number is dwindling down to 20 or something like that. But the fact of the matter is, is, is there was never an official death count ever. Okay. So there have been a lot of stories over the years. Uh, an, an important one piece of evidence came from Walter White. Walter White was later the executive director of the NAACP. But in 1921, he was an NAACP employee. He was an extremely light-skinned African-American who had blonde hair and blue eyes and would be taken as a white person without a doubt by most people. And what White had done is whenever there was a horrific lynching or riot or some other event, he would ride from New York on a, by train to wherever this event happened. He would first present himself to the white community, you know, as a reporter, as a white reporter, find out from them what had happened or their versions thereof. And then he would go across the tracks to the African-American side, reveal who he was and find out both stories. So he was one of the few people who could get evidence from both sides. Then he'd go back to New York and he would write up these stories and they were just dynamite because he had, you know, very damning evidence as to what happened. Well, he came to Tulsa and he ended up writing a story for the Outlook in middle of June of 1912. And in it, he quoted the commandant of the Tulsa Salvation Army. And the commandant talked about how the Salvation Army chapter in Tulsa had fled something like 37 grave diggers for the first two nights and another 20 or something for another two nights after that. And what we know and what we determined, my gosh, 20 years ago during the era of the Tulsa Race Riot Commission is that one man can dig one grave in, in about an eight-hour period. So if you did that, add it, add it up, is that in, in terms of Walter White's article, it, it came out to be something like 112 individual graves. And we later discovered that in the 1960s, I believe she was a sergeant in the Tulsa Salvation Army. She had done an interview talking about feeding a number of African-American grave diggers who were actually shackled during this period of digging graves. All right. So then over the years, I've spoken with a number of people, white and black alike, who they were often children at the time, but have vivid memories of seeing flatbed trucks with the bodies of riot victims on them. And then there's a very, very rich oral tradition in Tulsa in both the white and black communities that posits a lot of things. There are people who believe that bodies were burned in the city incinerator. There are others who hold steadfast to the idea that the bodies were dumped in the Arkansas River. There are stories of mines outside of town where they were body, you know, buried and lots and lots of stories. And I'll talk about that in a minute 
and nor do we know really what the ratio is of white to black. So during the era of the riot commission, Dr. Clyde Snow, renowned forensic anthropologist, worked with us, and he was able to confirm 39 riot dead. I think about two-thirds black, one-third white. I'm not exactly, I can't remember right off the bat. And these are people that we had death certificates or, or cemetery records or funeral home records. Most of them, though not all of them, were named, okay? So we know that. So that's got to be the bottom line. There's not less than 39 people killed. But I think that there are legitimate estimates that go as high as 300. Um, the, the director of the Red Cross efforts in Tulsa felt that the number was uh, 300. We've heard other stories of casualty lists that were seen in the 1960s and before then that go as high as 300. And I think that that's a legitimate number. But there's also a real question as to what the ratio is of blacks to whites who were killed. And that's where the issue of the term massacre is, you know, there's some questions about using that term. I can tell you that in the 1970s, I interviewed W.D. Williams. His family owned the Dreamland Theater. They owned an automobile garage. They also owned the Williams Building. The first floor was a confectionery run by W.D. or Bill Williams' mother. There were doctors and lawyers' offices on the second floor. And on the third floor, the family had their apartment. Well, during the night of May 31st, June 1st, Bill Williams, who was 16, stayed up all night helping to load his father's 30-30 rifle and a shotgun as to stop whites from invading Greenwood. Finally, when dawn broke, they had to leave, and of course, everything was burned. But I talked to, to W.D. Williams in the 1970s and trying to figure out what to call this event, okay? And I do distinctly remember suggesting the term race massacre. And he just, you know, got hot at that immediately said, no, 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 no way. He said, because we got as many of them as they got as us. So, you know, that's where we really don't know. I think that, you know, there were significant number of fatalities. Do I think it's closer to 300 than 39? Absolutely. Do I think that there were more African-Americans than whites? Absolutely. But the bottom line is we just really don't know. Gotcha. Finally, can you just talk about where we are with regards to the efforts to unearth, to discover, to validate sure. some of these mass graves? And, you know, how long has this been going on? I mean, I can tell you that this effort really began in 1998. And I had been hired by the Tulsa Race Riot Commission, the state commission, to, you know, help do research and find a report. And I, I, even though there was very much a feeling that there were lots of records that were out there that nobody had ever seen, I felt that there weren't going to be a lot of records, that a lot of things had been purposely destroyed over the years, had been lost, you know, had been borrowed, never returned. And I just didn't think we would find a lot. But I did think that one thing that we needed to do is to see if we could get, a, number one, a better idea on the number of people who were killed, and number two, try to figure out where they were buried, particularly these unmarked graves. And uh, Clyde Snow, this renowned forensic anthropologist, world-renowned, uh, then joined our group, and he made the suggestion that once we find these potential, you know, mass grave sites, that we would then unearth them, find out as much as we could, determine who these people were, what their race was, what their gender, age, all of that, and possibly through DNA, you know, as we uh, determine who these actual individuals were, find out how they died and whatnot. So that. That's an effort that we began 
1999, we identified three potential mass grave sites, and we did some beginning and somewhat rudimentary use of ground-penetrating radar at those sites with some mixed results. We also turned up a, a white eyewitness 20 years ago. We spoke to over 300 people, black and white, throughout the city, you know, about these things. And, and we had dozens of stories, many of which were ludicrous, others of which were, oh, I heard they were out there down in the country somewhere in Sepulpa that you couldn't really ever track down. You really had to have a piece of ground and some evidence to support it. But we were shut down. We were shut down 20 years ago. We were shut down first by the riot commission and then by the city of Tulsa. Wait, why would the riot commission shut you down? They hired you. Well, the riot commission was made up of different folks with different political perspectives and different interests. So there were some members of the riot commission who were there solely to vote against reparations for riot survivors. There were others on the riot commission who were very much more conspiracy-minded in terms of how they viewed the riot. And there were others sort of in the middle. And what happened is when the word it got out in 1998 or nine, I can't remember exactly what year, that we were searching for riot victims because we had, we had done this quietly. I mean, when Clive Snow and I decided that we should look for this, I went first to the survivor community, to survivors I've known for 20 years and said, would you like us to do this? And to a woman and man, they all said yes. I then went to the commission. They said yes. Well, when the word got out that we were looking for this, this, be- this blew up into a national and then an international story. And what happened is that there were members of the commission who were very much in favor of reparations, which many of us were as well. Many of the scholars were too. And they were concerned that all the focus on the bodies was taking away from their efforts to win reparations for riot survivors. And I think that was a lot of, lot of reasons shutting us down. And then we were shut down by the city. So, um, and why and so do you think what, the city shut you down? I, I think that, that there was a perception that this was, you know, the riot had become, again, briefly, prior to the Watchman era, prior to today, it had become a national story. I mean, the, you know, CBS 60 Minutes did a story, NBC Nightly News. There were journalists from Sweden and Japan, you know, who came to Tulsa to do this. There was an Emmy Award winning documentary. All of this, I think there was a feeling in parts of the city government that this was bad publicity for Tulsa. Hmm. This was something we didn't want to see happen. I, I'm just guessing. I don't know. I'm guessing on both of those. I can tell you that we were shut down twice. So, and that remained shut down until about a year ago when I was contacted by the mayor's office and ended up meeting with the mayor who asked me to help, you know, restart this effort and, and lead it. So I can tell you that we've identified four locations in Tulsa, or the greater Tulsa area, where we think the potential is high, that these are the unmarked burial sites of riot victims. The sites are Oakland Cemetery, New Block Park, a historic Booker T. Washington Cemetery, and an area along uh, the Arkansas River called the Canes. So we, during late this summer, early this fall, we uh, came back, the uh, archaeologists came back, and we have a much higher quality um, ground-penetrating radar and other devices to, do, to try and determine if these are grave sites. The data we have from this are, are oral histories, oral tradition, written records, other things that we put together 
you know, over 20 years. And at the Oaklawn site, in two of our areas, we found anomalies, uh, one of which is rather large, a 25 by 30 feet area in what was known as the Sexton's area of the cemetery. And there was a long oral tradition that said that riot victims were buried in unmarked graves there. There's another associated site, which is near the only two African-American riot headstones in the cemetery. But we had determined 20 years ago through looking through old funeral home records that we found that a, a local funeral home had built the county for the burial of, I think, 19 black riot victims, some identified, some unidentified. And we think that this area, the second area, is where these are buried. At New Block Park, where what we thought was a very strong story from the 1940s about a work crew discovering a cache of bones that, that we felt were riot-related, turned out nothing. But at this spot along the Arkansas River called the Canes, where again, we had a, a, another story and, and a lot of oral tradition pointing us to certain areas, there are some anomalies there that might also represent burials. Finally, University of Tulsa Anthropology Associate Professor Dr. Alicia Oruwale, who we've also heard from previously in this podcast. You are also involved in the efforts to uncover supposed mass graves where a lot of the victims were allegedly buried after they were killed during the massacre. Tell me what your role in this effort is. Yeah, so I'm happy to be a member of the Physical Investigation Committee for the Search for Mass Graves, but I am a member that is really just offering a bit more support in terms of cultural interpretation for this space, because I am well-versed in African diaspora archaeology, but I am not a physical anthropologist. I'm not a forensic anthropologist. So my work in this and my contribution to this work is more in how we're thinking about the cultural material that could be around these individuals that were buried or lost in the process of this massacre but also thinking about how we interpret this space to be cognizant that we're not doing harm to our present day descendants and current residents as well as respecting people in the past so there's a lot of like cultural understanding that has to be bridged between any technical work and working with the community because I'm technically on all three of the mayors committees, both the physical investigation committee, the historical context, and the public oversight committee, because it's kind of awkward being in that space where you are both an archaeologist, but also part of the community. I live here, I work here, I was born here, so this is is personal for me. Understood. And with that, can you tell us where the commission is with regards to its efforts to at least perhaps confirm that, yes, there are mass graves, and yes, they exist here? So between the three sites that have been investigated so far, that we have done geophysical surveys within those three sites, the Canes, New Block Park, and Oaklawn, there have been signatures consistent with a mass grave, possibly, but there's no way to tell when you're doing a survey 
in terms of what we're going to find whenever we actually do an excavation, because all the GPR and gradiometer is going to pick up anomalies under the soil, but it's up to us to do the testing, ground truthing, and further excavation to determine what those anomalies are exactly. We still don't know exactly what we're going to find or how many. There's a lot of unknowns to this work, but I think right now we have more support than ever before, and especially from the city more so than ever before. So we need to take advantage of it while we have it. But I think as you, I'm sure talked with Scott Ellsworth, there's a lot of connection between the number of grave diggers that were hired and the number of days those workers were doing that labor to estimate the number of people they possibly buried in mass graves. But these are again, just estimates. We still have no idea. But I've also talked to community members and heard testimony from survivors that there could be thousands. So we literally don't know. In the next episode, we'll explore present-day Greenwood, or Black Wall Street. Check out our Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter pages by searching for Black Wall Street 1921. You can also check out our website, www.blackwallstreet-1921.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Oh, and here's what's on my podcast list this month. Pax Britannica, which is a narrative history podcast on the British Empire, and History of Witchcraft, which covers the witch crazes of the early modern period. (music) 